Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. From the blackest corners of your mind, they call, pulling you deep into shadow, twisting your senses, keeping you from sleep. It's time to face your darkest fears. This is Tales to Terrify. Good evening, children of the night, and welcome. We start with another flash fiction reminder. You've got just a little over a week to get your terrifyingly mutated ducks in a row before the sluice gates of our newest flash fiction contest open and begin spilling horrors into our submissions pile. In case you need a reminder, nautical horror. It's what the horror fiction gods demand. Well, our editors, Seth and Meredith, anyway. TalesToTerrify.com slash Flash Contest has the details. And it's also where you can expect the underwater portal to open come May 1st. We're excited to see what terrible things you dredge up from the depths. Our flesh crawls with thankfulness this week in appreciation for our newest patron, Aiko. Thank you from the bottom of my cold heart, Aiko. We appreciate you supporting our Stygian enterprise so very much. As usual, patreon.com slash tales to terrify is where you can explore all the benefits of joining Aiko and the many other children of the night who lend their arcane energies to our audio fiction endeavors. Speaking of which, we have two tales for you this evening about the justifiable fear of sitting on a stranger's lap and a wealthy hunting party that discovers they may not be the only ones on the prowl. Our first story for the evening comes from Deirdre Coles. Deirdre Coles lives in Seattle 
where she spends her time fighting crime, screaming insults at ospreys, and trying to ingratiate herself to the local crow population. All hail future overlords! Her previous work has appeared in Everyday Fiction, 365 Tomorrows, Infective Ink, Microhorror, Free Flash Fiction, and Casca Press Fantasy Flash Fiction. She is inspired by her children and thinks she sometimes goes too easy on the moms in her stories. If her family doesn't like it, they should write their own stories. Children of the Night, join me for Deirdre Cole's The Problem with Mall Santas, a Tales to Terrify original. The demented elf dragging me by the arm represented everything I hated about Christmas. The forced gaiety, the hidden strain. The elf had a sheen of sweat on her forehead and a fixed grin on her face. You weren't allowed to have feelings where Christmas was concerned. It was merry or nothing. My mother had succumbed to it too, and that's why she turned me over to the elf for pictures with Santa, no matter what I said. My mother refers to me as painfully shy, but I thought that was understating the case. I was agonizingly shy, killingly shy, but these pictures were important to her. They were part of her effort to show the world that I was within the safe circle of what the world considers normal and not diagnosable, which was a word I heard my aunt use about me at Thanksgiving. The bad thing about my mom is that she cares way too much about what Aunt Marina thinks. So I was already dreading my visit. But once I actually saw Santa, I realized I hadn't been nearly scared enough. But when he saw me dragged in, he sat up abruptly and leaned forward, looking ready to pounce. The elf dropped my arm and scurried off. I couldn't look away from Santa but I could see her from the corner of my eye. Maybe, I thought, her expression might not be just holiday stress, but something a lot more like terror. When I say I couldn't look away from Santa, I mean that literally. Usually, I had trouble making eye contact with people, but his eyes, a terrible pale blue, pinned me in place. He smelled bad, seriously bad. I had a recently refreshed mental catalog of unpleasant smells from mandatory hugs at Thanksgiving, and he was ticking all the boxes. Not just the whiskey and cigarette reek of my Uncle Dan, or the body odor of my cousin Patrick, who my mom said was seriously old enough that somebody needed to talk to him about wearing deodorant, or even the diaper smell of Patrick's baby half-sister. Stronger than all of that was the roadkill smell from the highway rest stop the one that made my dad say, thank God we never visit these people in the summer. Santa stared at me without the least trace of a smile. 
and he asked me the question, Well, little girl, have you been naughty or nice? I was mute with terror, of course, and stood there silent as a stone. Usually when I clammed up like this, there would be a long, uncomfortable silence. Not this time. You don't have to tell me, because I already know. Remember, I see you when you're sleeping. I see you when you're sneaking. My eyes must have flickered at that because his lit up. I see you when you're sneaking and snooping and spying. Quieter than a mouse, but everyone knows. Everyone thinks it's ever so creepy, and that puts you right smack dab on my naughty list. And you know what you'll get, right? A stocking full of coal. And you know what happens when you dangle a heap of coal over an open fireplace. The whole place burns down in a minute, with moms and dads and little girls, too. Crackle, crackly pop. Suddenly he grabbed me and pulled me close against him, turning my face toward the far side of the room. Enough chatter. Picture time, he said. Now smile. I stared at the camera. Nobody was behind it. Where was the elf? Smile, he said again, angrier. His hands were clamped to my upper arms, gripped like a vice. I wasn't going anywhere until he let me go. That was the message of a grip like that. The last kid we had in here who wouldn't smile, we had to help him. You know what I did? I took some of those ornament hooks and put them in the corners of his mouth, pulled his lips right up into a nice sunny grin. A quick photo edit, and all mom and dad see is a sweet little smile. I still have the hooks in my pocket. They've got a little bit of blood on them, but they'll work just fine. He nearly whispered the next line. Or for you, I might use fish hooks. At that, at the thought of those fingers going near my face, I did smile, a joyless, terrified rictus of a grin, and that's when the flashbulb went off. It felt like that time my closet door fell off its track and hit me on the head. So wide, it hit everywhere at once, so I was knocked down to the floor and couldn't even tell where to point when my dad asked me where I was hurt. My eyes must have been Open too wide, I thought, and without knowing how I got there, I was stumbling out of Santa's workshop and into the mall courtyard where my mother was standing. I fled to her, pressing my face against her sweater. She put her arms around me and made some vague soothing noises. She didn't seem to know what to say. At least it was over, I thought, but I quickly realized it wasn't, not at all, because against the fabric of my mother's sweater— I could feel the corners of my mouth jerking up into that same fixed, horrible smile. Two lines of pain ran down my body, my back muscles and legs contracting violently into locked, rigid lines. It was hard to move my ribs enough to breathe. Then I felt something entirely different. A hand placed on my head, and then on my back, and a feeling like warm honey waterfalling through me breaking me free, unlocking my muscles to the point that I was hardly standing up, hanging on to my mother. I looked up, and my eyes were streaming with tears now. 
but I could see a woman in a red and white sweater. She looked exactly like a hundred other harried shoppers, generic to the point of invisibility. Her face was kind and sad. Did you have a hard time of it in there? She said. Don't worry, I'll take care of him. The problem with mall Santas, you see, is that some of them are evil. She looked up at my mother. Don't buy the photo. It's got a piece of her soul trapped in it. I'm going to destroy all the pictures, and him too. You should go, now. One good thing about my mother is she knows better than to hang around and argue when weird shit goes down. She nodded, and still half holding me up, started walking briskly towards the mall exit. We didn't turn around when the elf shouted that we needed to come pay for our pictures, or when other, much louder sounds started up behind us. After one particularly loud crash, I felt a million rubber bands snapping against my skin, pins and needles prickling like blood rushing back into my entire body at once. I felt like myself again, and I had something I very urgently wanted to say. Listen, Mom, I said, no pictures with the Easter Bunny this year, okay? That was Deirdre Cole's The Problem with Mall Santas, as read by Emily Strand. Emily Strand is a writer, musician, and college professor living in Ohio who really enjoys robots. Thank you, Emily. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. 
J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Our second tale tonight comes from Lee Clark Zump. Lee Clark Zump has been writing and publishing horror, dark fantasy, and speculative fiction since the late 1990s. His short stories and poetry have appeared in a variety of publications, such as Weird Tales, Space and Time, and Dark Wisdom, and in anthologies such as The Children of Glaaki, Best New Zombie Tales Volume 3, Through a Mythos Darkly, Heroes of Red Hook, and World War Cthulhu. His work has earned several honorable mentions in the year's best fantasy and horror collections. As entertainment editor for Tampa Bay newspapers, Lee has penned hundreds of film, theater, and book reviews, and has interviewed novelists as well as music industry icons such as Patty Maloney of The Chieftains and Ellen Parsons. His work for TBN has been recognized repeatedly by the Florida Press Association, including a first-place award for criticism in the 2013 Better Weekly Newspaper Contest. Lee lives on the west coast of Florida with his wife and daughter. Visit leeclarkzump.com. Link is in the show notes. Listen with me, children of the night, to Lee Clark Zump's Dark Timber, first published in Strange Tales of Horror, 2011. The narrow road wound through primeval spruce and birch forests, along crystal-blue lakes and streams, and by floodplain meadows dotted with rowan bushes and lincolnberries. A modern, air-conditioned motor coach raced along the rustic route, heading north through idyllic countryside. Earlier in the day, the occupants had noticed dairy farms, textile factories, and aquaculture centers dotting the landscape. As their trek took them farther from Sheremetyevo International Airport, they found fewer traces of civilization in the vast woodlands, racing by outside the windows. In its enormity, its murkiness, and its capacity to give refuge to both primitive horrors and the blackest secrets of the Soviet era, the seemingly impenetrable and ancient wilderness had no true counterpart in North America. Somewhere in the darkest of the shadow-plagued Russian thickets, one of the planet's most endangered species endured, surviving in a vast, clandestine game preserve. That these beasts had staved off extinction at all seemed miraculous, particularly in light of humanity's centuries-old war against them. Their salvation, though, came with a substantial price. 
Clint McCormick watched as the old man glared at the blaze in the hearth, a tankard of ale frothing on the discolored table before him. Grigory Rodchenko may have been old, but to describe him as elderly would be a grave inaccuracy. His age showed mainly in his iron-gray hair and the furrows of his solemn expression, an equal mix of scars and wrinkles. Otherwise, his sinewy leanness and his somber industriousness showed no outward signs of deteriorating health or failing faculties. For a man well into his eighties, Rodchenko proved an intimidating figure. Of course, to make a living breeding and maintaining an ample supply of Vlokodlatsi on more than 80,000 hectares of land, one had to be intimidating. In stark contrast, several of the men gathered in the Russian hunting lodge appeared to be in less than perfect shape. The exclusive club catered mainly to wealthy Americans, and these particular individuals personified some of the worst characteristics of the country's affluent. Benson Kaiser, for instance, had seen far better days. Stocky and august-looking, he displayed the hallmarks of a 19th-century patrician, decked out in overpriced 21st-century fashions that barely fit his plump frame. While a series of medical procedures had veiled much of the oil man's gluttonous nature, his pallid and puffy face betrayed his fading fitness. A venture capitalist who had survived the recent economic downturn at the expense of others, Godfrey Meadows' gaunt and ashen countenance hinted at malnutrition. His emaciation, however, stemmed from a string of communicable diseases, all treatable, though some incurable. The decadence and depravity of his youth haunted him in middle age. Spencer Woodruff, a real estate tycoon whose dwindling assets still amounted to nearly a billion in U.S. dollars, prided himself on a healthy lifestyle. At 55, he jogged 20 miles a day and ate only vegetarian dishes. Still, a lifetime of uncontrolled hypertension had taken its toll. Between the chronic migraines and his ever-worsening eyesight, Woodruff surmised his best days were behind him. William Whitney, the biotech mastermind and owner of Gen Energy Research, seemed untouched by greed, excess, and anxiety. The light of the fire illuminated his expression. His cheeks were half covered with black whiskers, his eyes were deep set and full of inquisitiveness. Long limbed, slender, and youthful, McCormick judged his age at no more than 35. McCormick himself was a wiry man of 40 years with a sandy, petite goatee, sideburns, and short hair. Tall, willowy, and symmetrical, he possessed a singularly aristocratic face anchored by piercing emerald eyes. Unlike the others, he had inherited his fortune. His family's wealth went back generations, and through careful investment and management, their prosperity had continued to expand. Hale and hardy or flabby and feeble, they had all traveled to this remote location to join in an extraordinarily expensive private hunt. Set in the deep, thick forests of the Tverskaya Oblast, north of Moscow, the hunting lodge dated back to the 1950s. Built from rough sawmill lumber, it featured a large common room with plenty of wooden chairs and benches, as well as a few scruffy recliners. A modest table capable of accommodating eight people a wood-burning stove in addition to the oversized fireplace, and an old console television that clearly hadn't been used in at least a decade. The lodge boasted eight double-occupancy rooms and four small unheated bathrooms. I trust your bellies are full. Lazar Lavrovich, a Russian-born American citizen, served as the group's translator. Rodchenko did not speak English, in fact. Rodchenko rarely spoke at all. 
Grigory suggests you all retire to your rooms for a few hours of slumber. He continued, though McCormick hadn't noticed the old man dictating any orders. We will meet here in this room at midnight for the hunt. Most participants, weary from jet lag and overstuffed on sturgeon and aspic, Solyanka, Caviar, Parashki, and Kashapori, eagerly embraced the suggestion and shambled off down darkened corridors to collapse on lumpy mattresses in small but tidy bedchambers. Rachenko drained his tankard, stood, spit into the fire, and walked out onto the front porch. Moments later, McCormick, still sitting in the great room, caught the scent of a Cuban cigar. Not tired, Mr. McCormick? Lavrovich lingered in the great room, flipping through the pages of Ogonyuk, a weekly illustrated magazine produced by Commerçant Publishing Group. It will be a long night, you know. Russian winters can be merciless, and late November offers a taste of what's to come. I don't sleep much, McCormick said. Insomnia. What do you think of our facilities? Raised in a New England enclave of Russian expatriates, Lavrovich had taken care to conceal his accent. Still, after a few beers, its ghost emerged, all but imperceptible to most. Do the grounds meet your expectations? So far, McCormick said, I'm mainly interested in seeing the game. I have to say, you don't much strike me as a wolfer, Lavrovich said. He swung about in his chair so he could face McCormick. Not like the type we usually see here, he said, gesturing toward the other men in the sleeping quarters. Not like them. They join the hunt because they can afford it. Another way to flaunt their wealth. One of the most exclusive clubs around, I gather. Absolutely, Lavrovich said. We receive hundreds of inquiries every year, but we screen each candidate. We only admit a few dozen each hunting cycle. I was surprised at the low turnout. From what McCormick had heard, the hunt, offered twice annually, usually attracted a throng of wolfers, enough to fill all the beds. Why all the vacancies? The economy, Lavrovich said. Fewer applications and fewer individuals made it through the evaluation. Too many people of questionable backgrounds. Too many people who might, what's the phrase, spill the beans, you know? No one has ever broken the code of silence? Seems hard to believe. A handful have tried. Lavrovich admitted, the corners of his mouth turning upwards to form an indecent grin. I'm sure you know what became of them. I know they disappeared, McCormick said. That much was explained in the orientation. All of the participants had been subjected to a three-hour lecture upon their arrival. Having spent the better part of the day traveling by motor coach, none of them had the energy to show much enthusiasm. I think it's best if I don't ask for specifics. You're a wise man, Mr. McCormick. Lavrovich leaned forward in his chair and lowered his voice. The truth is, it doesn't matter who they might be. Reclusive billionaires or publicity-hungry public figures, if they so much as mentioned the word werewolves in connection with this establishment, our agents will... He paused, easing back into the recliner. Let's just say that it always works out in the end. What I don't get is how you can keep them confined over long periods of time. McCormick noticed a subtle change in his host's demeanor and immediately regretted his phrasing. He felt like he had just stuck his arm elbow deep into a snake sack filled with eastern diamondbacks. What I mean, he quickly said, is that even though they're animals, don't they have a human component? And Doesn't that make them more difficult to control? Well, Lavrovich said, his suspicion allayed for the time being, the human component, as you refer to it, doesn't manifest itself in our animals. It's a common misconception that these beasts are even remotely civilized, in fact. Really? 
Absolutely. All the stories you grew up on, all the movies you've seen, they're all completely false. Lavrovich shook his head emphatically and waved his hands as if dismaying all the phony legends. All backward they are. How does that old saying go? Even a man who is pure in heart and says his prayers by night may become a wolf when the wolfbane blooms and the autumn moon is bright. <laughs> Preposterous. I'm not sure I understand, McCormick said. Are you saying that the werewolves, the Lakadlatsi, don't actually transform? Not at all, Leverich said. I'm saying that they aren't people who turn into wolves because of some ancient curse. They're wolves who, over thousands of years, developed an ability to temporarily transform themselves into humans. Clint McCormick eyed the U-shaped boggy grassland beneath the twilight, flustered by the uncanny absence of sound. The unsettling silence suggested an exodus of native fauna, as if lesser beasts had long ago ceded the territory to a dominant carnivore. The narrow strip of man-made prairie was no more than 400 meters wide, though it stretched several kilometers in length, so far that even in daylight McCormick doubted he could see the distant tree line. Somewhere in that dusky sylvan hinterland, McCormick knew he would find a sprawling confinement facility serving as both a feedlot and a factory farming production system. He had personally surveyed top-secret satellite images. The entire area had been blurred in photographs available in public forums, a legacy of the Cold War. A decade of exhaustive investigation had led McCormick to the Obroten Complex and the adjoining Rochenko Hunt Club. What began as a passing interest in folklore relating to werewolves and other shape-shifting creatures had blossomed into a ten-year obsession to locate the only surviving members of the endangered species, even if it was a captive breeding population. While he knew enough to expect appalling conditions at the facility, his painstaking research ultimately revealed only abstractions and conjecture. The cloak of secrecy constructed by Grigory Rodchenko and his former KGB cronies proved as impassable as the 325-kilometer high-tech security barricade that surrounded the most sensitive area of the complex. Tonight, McCormick hoped to resolve his lingering doubts. Each wolfer had been positioned in the dark timber encircling the meadow at 30-meter intervals. The men waited on steel tree stands equipped with nylon web-strap fasteners and optional full-body harnesses and drop blinds. Some of them employed the gun rests, another luxury for the pampered, wealthy wolfers. Most of the hunters brought Winchesters and Remingtons. For show, McCormick flaunted a CZ-550 Classic Safari chambered in 375 H&H Magnum cartridges. He also carried a Barrett M98B, a bolt-action sniper rifle, a weapon he trusted implicitly, and a perfect choice for the task at hand. Before striking out into the Russian wilderness, Lazar Lavrovich drew names from a wooden bowl, assigning the order in which the participants would engage the prey. He recapped the rules of the hunt. A total of five Vlokodlatsi would be released, one at a time. Each wolfer would be allocated a specific beast along with two opportunities for a kill shot. Should the wolfer fail to fall the werewolf in two shots, the other participants could then engage the prey. A feeder, strategically located in the middle of the meadow, drew the game in close to the hunters. McCormick saw little challenge in the contest, luring a half-starved Vlokodlatsi to a bucket of blood and guts surrounded by languid wolfers seemed somewhat less than sporting. The appearance of the first beast beneath the cloudless night skies validated McCormick's speculation. It lumbered awkwardly across the grassland, 
its hunger eclipsing any remnant of stealth once ingrained in its species. At first glance, the individual could have been mistaken for a very large gray wolf. Its smooth, furred legs, narrow muzzle, and massive shoulders attested to its predatory nature without revealing the genetic anomaly brought about by rapid evolutionary change during the Ice Age. Long before the other wolfers noticed the telltale biological variations that differentiated the animal, McCormick saw its anatomical aberrations. It had a much shorter neck than common wolves, though it easily measured 2.5 meters from nose to the tip of its tail. Its coat lacked a layer of guard hairs consisting mainly of a dense undercoat, though in this example, the beast's fur appeared sparse due to poor living conditions. It boasted a larger skull than the common wolf, suggesting the creature possessed a more highly developed brain. Having covered most of the ground on all four paw pads, the werewolf stood nearly erect as it neared the feeder. It scanned the woods with golden-brown eyes. While it may well have sensed danger, its hunger pushed it to accept the risk. Unlike the others, McCormick could smell its emptiness. It had not been fed for days, and prior to that, it had lived on the brink of starvation all of its life. Moreover, it reeked of another kind of deficiency. It lacked purpose and instinct, bearing and reasoning. The Abrotten complex had reduced it to little more than a mindless devourer. McCormick pitied the solitary Vlachlodlach as much as he lamented the fate of its ancestors. Hunted to the brink of extinction long after their kind presented any real threat to humanity, the last few centuries had seen them endlessly hounded, exploited, and abused. The Nazis sought to exterminate them, the French tried to incarcerate them in deplorable conditions, and the Soviets tried to enslave them as dogs of war in various military campaigns. The disastrous 1984 Kabul massacre in Afghanistan forced Konstantin Chernenko to eliminate his government's clandestine program. At that time, the entire Abrotin complex was handed over to Rodchenko to utilize as he saw fit. McCormick knew the old man represented only one small link in a chain of atrocities that stretched back centuries. Still, he looked forward to settling the score with him. A single shot from Benson Kaiser's rifle struck the werewolf an inch below the sagittal crest of its skull, instantly ending its pathetic existence. McCormick winced, knowing he could not act quickly enough to save every creature imprisoned in the complex. More blood would be spilled in the coming hours. If he acted quickly... McCormick hoped most of it would be human blood. In one regard, Lazar Lavrovich's comments earlier in the evening had been correct. The Vlakad Lazi, confined in the Avrotin complex, were evolutionary throwbacks. They represented the last specimens of a branch of the Kanade family that emerged during the last Ice Age. Competing with humans during the late Pleistocene, Canis erectus evolved initially as a bipedal beast of prey enabling them to rival the hunter-gatherers spread across the globe. Then, one of the most unconventional leaps in biology occurred. The Canis erectus developed the ability to mimic the physical traits of its primary adversaries. Modern textbooks had erased all mention of the species in the mid-20th century. Academicians routinely rejected its very existence, quickly debunking any credible evidence by crying werewolf equating convincing claims with centuries of myths and fables. For the scientific community, the inability to adequately address the genetic anomaly that created the real werewolf proved an embarrassment best swept under the carpet. For the descendants of politicians who endorsed centuries of genocide, 
the pogroms were best veiled from a new wave of environmentally conscious citizens. For a wealthy man like Clint McCormick, though, information on the subject was easy to obtain. Aside from his affluence, his unique heritage offered opportunities to delve deeper into the secret history. Lavrovich erred in claiming that people do not transform into wolves. Whether he intentionally suppressed the truth, or he really believed that all of history's purported sightings could be attributed to a strain of prehistoric, full-blooded Vlokodlatsi, McCormick did not know. McCormick did know that in the shadowy centuries before civilization materialized, interbreeding had taken place between Canis erectus and Homo sapiens. The resulting hybridization, a recessive genetic trait, continued to manifest itself in a small number of families around the world, including McCormick's line. In the distance, he heard a metallic clanging as a massive gate swung on its hinges. He heard a second Vlaklodlak plunge headlong into the night, a congenial full moon teetering above the treetops. Like its predecessor, it's hunger to find it. McCormick estimated the distance to the facility at just under three kilometers. The time had come. He used a night vision spotting scope to target his first victim. He'd already determined each marksman's general location using his acute sense of smell. Grigory Rodchenko believed in redundancy, stationing as many sharpshooters in the field as he had wolfers presumably to maintain order. Fortunately, Rodchenko's hired guns had been plucked from the dregs of the Russian military. Targets number one and two both reeked of cheap vodka and cigarettes. McCormick pegged them both with one shot each, killing them before they could utter a sound. Target number three slumped over in his tree stand, the nylon harness cutting into his flabby midsection. Asleep, his rasping and wheezing had been a minor aggravation for the last hour. The bullet burrowed into his skull, cutting him off in mid-snore. Target number four proved more elusive. At first, McCormick feared that he had been alerted to the attack. After all, the custom-made suppressor in his Barrett M98B didn't completely muffle the noise. Each of Rodchenko's mercenaries may have been under surveillance too, monitored from a central locale capable of warning others of an assault. An instant later, McCormick's fears evaporated. He located the target on the ground near his tree stand, relieving himself. Turning his sights on target number five, McCormick found himself looking down the shortened barrel of a Dragunov SVU sniper rifle. He instinctively rolled, allowing himself to fall several meters to the ground, where he scrambled for cover. His momentary panic faded when he relocated the marksman. He remained frozen in the same position. At first glance, McCormick had not noticed the peculiar angle of his neck or the thin trail of blood running down his chin. Target number five, had already been neutralized. McCormick met William Whitney, the biotech wizard, over the werewolf carcass in the middle of the meadow. There's another one approaching, Whitney said. While McCormick had been eliminating the marksman, the owner of Gen Energy Research had used a specially made tranquilizer gun to subdue the other wolfers. I need to get back to my position. I'd prefer not to have to kill it, but I will if the sedative doesn't work. It will work, McCormick said. Just make sure you get these people out of here alive. McCormick eyed the dark timber anxiously, anticipating a second wave of sharpshooters. His senses, though, told him the woods concealed no more mercenaries. I don't like them, but I don't want their blood on my hands. Neither do I, Whitney said. In a few minutes, I'll have what I came for. Their alliance had been provisional. McCormick didn't approve of Whitney's plans to return to the United States with a live specimen for experimentation, 
but he needed his cooperation on site as well as a critical key code that could power down the containment system at the complex. I'll have them out of the country before they wake up. What about your prize? He'll go back to a holding facility in Germany first, Whitney said. Then I'll have him transferred to a gen energy lab in the Midwest. He won't be harmed physically, McCormick said. I gave my word, Whitney answered, visibly annoyed. Both men knew the Vakodlak would be closing on the feeder in a few minutes. Either one, fully transformed, would have been capable of deflecting its onslaught, likely killing it in the process. Whitney needed a live specimen. If I can unlock its secrets, map its genome, I may be able to help those who share our condition, the ones who can't control it like we can. You know that it's worth it. I know that it's lived its entire life in a prison, like the others, McCormick said. It deserves freedom. You're just liberating it from one jail and putting it into another. You're not offering it a choice. It will be cared for. I promise you, Whitney said. Now go. There are others you can help. Get them out before Rachenko realizes what's happening. McCormick handed his weapons and his gear to Whitney. A moment later, he had transformed. Heart-hammering in his chest, McCormick sped across the meadow. His nails had hardened, sharpened, reformed into claws. His teeth and jaws had realigned. His tongue danced over sharp fangs. His bones had shifted, his muscles thickened. A tail extended from his backbone. The moon-swapped forests and the starry twilight became a dark blur as he raced toward the Abrotten complex. He dared not speculate about the scope of atrocities committed in the covert facility over the years. He tried to steel himself for the misery he anticipated. Gunfire erupted less than a kilometer in front of him. His team had arrived on the scene. They had explicit instructions to eradicate the perimeter defenses and create a breach in the exterior wall. Under no circumstances were they to enter the facility before dawn. An explosion took down the main gate. Inadequately trained sentries fell back, many fleeing into the forest, fearful, perhaps, that the Vlakodlatsi might break free. By the time McCormick arrived, the facility's outer defenses had been obliterated. He counted the corpses by the stench hovering in the air. At least 22 had been killed in the daring raid on Russian soil. That he did not count among the dead, either Grigory Rychenko or Lazar Lavrovich aggravated him. As a werewolf, McCormick's feet steered him effortlessly around obstacles, both animate and inanimate. In the thickest tangle of dense woods, he could maneuver through thickets of trees without moderating his speed. In the dank corridors of the Abrotten complex, his progress was no less nimble. The few defenders who remained, sheltered behind makeshift barricades, marveled at the grace with which the invader advanced, and trembled at the ease with which he butchered their cohorts. A fusion of elegant action and shocking fury, McCormick mauled the soldiers mercilessly. With a swipe of an arm, his claws ripped throats, opened chests, and severed limbs. Those foolish enough to trust themselves in his path met a ghastly end his jaws closing on their necks, whipping them side to side before flinging them away like tattered vermin. McCormick felt a sharp sting in his left shoulder as he approached what appeared to be the facility's command center. He shrugged off the pain as a minor nuisance at first. He's not one of ours, he heard Lavrovich say. Both he and Rochenko stood close to the back of the room, a bank of monitors behind him. The screen cycled through countless images depicting the inhabitants of the complex. Most appeared restless. Some, in wolf form, howled angrily. Others, in human form, pounded on the doors of their cells. A fine specimen, though. Had there been others in the control room, they had either been dismissed or abandoned their posts. Rochenko muttered something in Russian. He held an OTS-38, Stechkin's silent revolver, a five-shot double-action revolver. 
He let the weapon rest at his side, confident that he would not need to take a second shot. McCormick felt a burning sensation in his abdomen. He staggered forward, his legs wobbling beneath him. He felt his bones starting to shift, his internal organs migrating painfully. He tried to prevent the transformation but found his willpower insufficient. The transformation complete, he collapsed to the floor. Mr. McCormick, Lavrovich said, feigning surprise. I should have known. Grigory will probably cut my salary for letting you slip through the screening process. What did you do to me? McCormick struggled to get back on his feet. The pain in his shoulder had increased to levels he had never experienced previously. His genetic condition generally muted the effects of such wounds and provided enhanced regenerative properties. Kind of like a silver bullet, eh? Lavrovich showed off that depraved grin again, the kind of smirk that only materializes when someone takes pleasure in another's suffering. Actually, it's a special cartridge coated with a toxin that inhibits the part of your brain that controls your lacodlac. Makes you, you know, more manageable. Fine, McCormick said, swallowing his pain. Doesn't change the outcome. I have a team outside that will storm the building at dawn. They'll end this with or without me. Yes, you have a team of twenty commandos, Leverich said. And we have a contingent of a hundred Russian troops en route as we speak. Call it our cavalry, coming to save the day. Bastards! McCormick moved forward, faltering before taking three steps. They should be free. Sorry, Mr. McCormick, Leverich said. That's not an option. Something silvery and black surged through the shadowing along the perimeter of the room, moving so swiftly even McCormick could not identify it. It brushed Lavrovich as it pounced on Rachenko. The old Russian disappeared behind a control booth, a geyser of blood erupting from the darkness. Lavrovich's eyes widened in horror, and he bolted for the door. A bullet struck him in the lower back, shattering his spine. McCormick looked over his shoulder. William Whitney stood in the corridor, carrying the Barrett M98B. Wasn't expecting backup, McCormick said, his breathing growing ragged. He leaned against a nearby desk. Glad you brought a friend. The Vlakodlak had already finished off Rachenko and was eyeing Lavrovich. Whitney had only spared the translator's life to give the werewolf a chance at vengeance. Poetic justice, Whitney said, scarcely flinching as Lavrovich screamed. How many Vlakodlatsi do you think he sent to their death over the years? You were supposed to clear out as soon as you had him, McCormick said. Don't get me wrong, I'm glad to see you, but what made you come here? He did, Whitney said, nodding toward the Vlakodlak. I gave him a choice. He wanted to come help you. Make sure you freed the others. He can talk? He's no Shakespeare, Whitney said. But he knows a smattering of Russian and French. Pleased with his disembowelment of Lavrovich, the Vlachlodlak cautiously joined his new friends. He transformed into a human-like form that more closely resembled a Neanderthal than Homo sapiens. Merci beaucoup, he said, bowing courteously. Nous extrêmement reconnaissant. Seeing the lack of comprehension in McCormick's eyes, the Vaclodlac apparently realized that he didn't speak French. Turning to Whitney, he said, de ma part. He wants to thank you, Whitney said. He was studying the control panel, searching for a way to release the werewolves. I gathered that, McCormick said. Sounds like he has a pretty extensive vocabulary to me. The sound of gunfire outside reminded McCormick that they weren't out of the woodlands of Tverskaya Oblast yet. Company he said, pain still darkening his eyes. Lavrovich called in a hundred soldiers. We're outnumbered. Not really, Whitney said, keying in a code his corporation's hackers had provided. If this works, we'll outnumber them ten to one. 
An infinitely long moment passed as the Abrotin complex's obsolete computer systems processed and validated the code. An override protocol written decades earlier, Whitney's hackers believed it had never been erased from the core mainframe. They believed it would open every cell block, remove every mobile confinement wall, and unlock every gate within the compound. As the doors opened, a cacophony of howls flooded the night. The starving Vlakadlatsi streamed into the dark timber, hungry for revenge. That was Lee Clark Zump's Dark Timber, as read by Dennis Robinson. Dennis Robinson is a fellow content creator from the haunted small town of Gettysburg, Pennsylvania. When he's not consulting by day, he is one of the creators behind the comedy podcast Botched, a D&D podcast. Found on all of your podcatchers, this is not your average D&D podcast, as they focus more on banter, character interaction, and improv comedy, instead of the rules. They even had an H.P. Lovecraft-themed campaign for Season 4, set in 1932 New York City. You can watch their show live, or catch up, over at twitch.tv slash botchedpodcast. Dennis is one of the creators behind Botched, and more recently, he's become the creative mastermind behind a brand new graphic novel series, about the world's first werewolf. A little mythology, a dash of folklore, and a sprinkling of history, he brings to you Lycan, Solomon's Odyssey. Part 1 is out now in digital format, and it sounds like, fingers crossed, all of the complications and kinks of the print version have been ironed out, and it's in the process of being printed as we speak. I can't wait to get my claws on my copy. This is the first in an ongoing series set to span across the ages. The Kickstarter for the next installment launches sometime in a couple of months, so keep your eyes and ears open for that. For now, feel free to search Lycan Solomon's Odyssey on Kickstarter or go to HiveheadStudios.com. And of course, you can check Dennis out on his botched podcast feeds as well, Links to all of these are in the show notes. Thank you, Dennis. Well, children of the night, the hour is late and we've run out of tales to tell. For now. Tales to Terrify is made possible by the tremendous generosity of our supporters on Patreon and PayPal. Incredible fans like Kathy Robinson and Amanda Gottfried, whose generous support helps keep the lights on and flickering ominously. Not a supporter already? Head over to patreon.com slash tales to terrify, where you'll find all kinds of perks like ad-free and extended episodes, bonus content, 
and one-of-a-kind collectibles and merch packs. Every dollar goes back into this show to make it as horrific as possible, and we appreciate it so much. Want another way to support the show that doesn't cost a cent? Head over to Stitcher, Podchaser, or Apple Podcasts and leave us a five-star review. You'll not only put an unnaturally wide smile on our faces, but help new listeners discover our terrifying tales, too. Now you can share your love of the show out in the world with some Tales to Terrify merch. TalesToTerrify.com slash merch will take you to our Tee Public store, where we've got a great collection of creepy custom and curated designs that's always growing, so check back often. Tales to Terrify is produced by Seth Williams, Meredith Morgenstern, Andrew Gibson, and myself, Drew Sebastini, with original theme by Nebulous Entertainment. Tales to Terrify is distributed under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license. Join us again next week as we gaze nervously into deepening shadows with more Tales to Terrify. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 